Welcome to GRE Snacks, snackable episodes about the GRE exam and graduate school admissions. I'm Tyler, the founder of Achievable, and we have an affordable GRE course that includes everything you need to ace your GRE exam. A full textbook, videos on key topics, tons of GRE questions backed by our memory enhancing algorithm, a built-in study planner and essay grader, and full-length practice exams. You can try it out for free by going to achievable.me, and if you like it, be sure to use the code PODCAST to save 10%. Now, let's get started. Today, we've got Petya Whitmore from My MBA Path. Petya, I'd love if you could just introduce yourself. Hi, Tyler. It's wonderful to be back on GRE Snacks. My name is Petya Whitmore, and I describe myself as one former dean of MBA admissions on a mission to create more MBA success stories. And I do this as the founder of the MBA admissions consulting firm, My MBA Path. Yeah, fantastic. So today we're going to be talking about really kind of the trends. We are recording this at the end of 2023. Um, and as round one of MBA admissions wraps up, what do we know about the people who got into the very top MBA programs, right? Um, I basically you know, Harvard Business School, Stanford Graduate School of Business, and things like that. Um, so yeah, uh, if you could kick us off, what's sort of the first thing that you notice uh, this year, both through your own customers and then just talking to everybody? It's a great question and one that every single candidate wants to know about. I've noticed that when I work with MBA candidates, the thing they love the most, other than getting some MBA admissions expertise is for me to pull the curtain and tell them like, who else is applying? Who gets in? What kind of story? Uh, but let's start first with where we're seeing the market being right now. Let's kind of like level set for a moment. Um, last year, it's now well documented in the previous MBA admission cycle, the 22-23 one, we know that applications went down across most schools. Um, not significantly, it was probably somewhere anywhere from barely 1% to 15% in some um, instances, but um, applications were down, especially from U.S. candidates. And as the news about that started to spread, um, MBA hopefuls started to ask, is it easier to get into a top MBA program this year? Because obviously when MBA applications are down, uh, you can argue perhaps, especially from a candidate standpoint, that maybe, just maybe, the doors to the most selective MBA programs open a little bit wider, uh, especially mm -hmm. for U.S. candidates, if that's the population that's down. But in right. reality, the answer is that it doesn't get easier. That's not exactly how it works. Even in times when applications are down, the top schools will never lower their standards. So mm -hmm. I wouldn't call this current admission cycle easier. I wouldn't even call the previous one easier when we know for a fact that applications were down. And all you need to do is browse maybe some of the forums like Clear Admit or GMAT Club, and you'll see plenty of MBA candidates with formidable statistics and backgrounds who still get rejected <laughs> at the very top schools. Uh, and, and now in the middle of all of this, we're actually getting indications that in round one this year, applications may have gone up. Uh, recently, when Kellogg announced um, to their admitted students from round one, they invite them to a Zoom call, um, and that's how they let them know that they've been admitted, and they mentioned that applications have been up in round one, and Booth mm -hmm. um, also mentioned apparently the same in front of prospective students. 
So while it's too early to tell if this may be just like around one phenomenon, it could even be driven by the changes to the exam, as you very well know. Um, ETS made some changes mm. primarily to the length of um, the exam, but then GMAT actually launched an entirely new um, version of the GMAT. And I know from experience mm -hmm. that when that happens, sometimes it pulls the demand forward. People actually flock to take the test before the changes because they worry about what is it going to mean? How is it going to affect me? I saw this very clearly years ago when GMAC introduced integrated reasoning. So again, right. you could argue that what's happening in round one might be influenced by that. It could also be the economy. Obviously, it's been a very sort of established trend that when the economy and the labor market are not in great shape, more people go to business school to weather the um, the difficult times. Right. But still, I feel like the current business school admissions landscape does present an opportunity. Uh, and it may be the kind of MBA admissions environment where strong candidates will have stronger odds at higher ranked schools. Um, you still need to be both competitive and compelling and build a strong application. That will never change. Even if MBA applications are down, um, you have yeah. to have both of these components. But but your chances do become stronger when the competition is a little bit less fierce. Yeah, I think it's just, it. it's important probably to note that, you know, a decrease in applications for maybe, you know, some schools that are less selective could make a, a reasonably big difference in the acceptance rate and just in general, like how competitive it is. But for the top schools, you know, they already were probably turning away people that could have thrived there. So there's still plenty of people applying, right? Oh, absolutely. That are going to be above the cut. If you look hard. at last year, I think that Harvard's total applications went down something like 1%, right? And yet, mm -hmm. I think, didn't they post like their highest median GMAT ever? 737 or something like that. So that tells yeah. you that the quality is never going to go down. Yeah. Uh, never enough that uh, it'll be a it'll be a walk in. <laughs> well, so I want to then kind of ask here. Okay, obviously it's still hard, but I I think it would be useful to kind of go through like what are the people that you're seeing getting into Stanford Graduate School of Business or into you know like other top schools. Like what kind of, what are trends are you seeing with those people now? So um, because we just started talking about application volumes, I'm just going to throw a couple of statistics out there just to put it in perspective for candidates. Uh, the GSB receives probably roughly about 14 applications for each seat in the class. And Harvard, I think, receives something like nine for each spot. And the thing that candidates very often don't realize is um, that a very large percentage of these candidates are actually perfectly qualified for admission. Um, I'm always amazed when I share a tidbit of information with prospective students that's actually prominently featured on one school's website. And yet, when I mention it to them, they, they're surprised. Um, the school that um, I am re referencing is Wharton. And literally mm. on, in their FAQs, they clearly tell you that they get somewhere between six to 7,000 applications in a given year. And that approximately 75 to 80% of all those applicants are qualified for admission. 
Wow. Right? I know. <laughs> you and I are in the business, and yet we get surprised by that number. And candidates definitely get surprised by that number. And then from there, Wharton tells you that they generally admit about a thousand candidates from that pool of six to seven thousand and yield a class of about 840 um, students. So it's worth with this in mind to talk about what differentiated those who got into these schools and, and what did they do differently than maybe the rest? And mm-hmm. I always like to say early on when, when people come and speak with me that there are no random winners in MBA admission. Like that remains true. It's always been true. Um, over the course of my tenure, I've been in MBA admissions for goodness, probably 15 or more years now. I think I, I started in 2009, very early in 2009. And prior to that, I was in academic services. So you could argue still in a business school environment. And this remained true in round one this year. Every single person that I know who got admitted had first a very strong proof of their ability to succeed academically. Each mm-hmm. was on a very different leadership journey, but they had been very intentional and thoughtful about their actions. And mm-hmm. they had examined and knew what their values were and how they had driven the choices that they made along the way of their career. So there was a lot of introspection, a lot of intentionality, a lot of people who clearly had a purpose. They were in a very not necessarily a linear journey in their careers because they had the most interesting detours and sideways, but they had been intentional about at each inflection point, making a choice that was driven by a larger sense of direction and purpose. So they didn't Mm -hmm. simply shoot their shot. I'm sure you've heard that expression very often. Oh, I'm just going to shoot my shot for Harvard. I'm going to shoot my shot for uh, Stanford. And, um, if you look up the definition of shooting your shot, it means to take a chance on something, mm-hmm. uh, even when the odds are against you. But again, there are no random winners. This is not a lottery where like it's not a drawing. Um, mm-hmm. So the candidates who got admitted shot their best shot. Um, one of my favorite management um, scientists, if you wish, someone would probably call him a management guru, Peter Drucker, uh, once said that every grand strategy has to eventually devolve to lowly action. So the MBA candidates who got admitted um, a couple of weeks ago at the time we're recording this um, were the ones who didn't just daydream. They didn't hope that they're going to be the lucky ones that the MBA comes at these schools select. They didn't bother asking strangers in the online forums to assess their odds. They relied on traction, incremental progress every week, working on all the tedious little parts of the application in order to increase their odds. So what ended up happening as a result is it's not like they were incredibly better, for lack of a better word, in the process. Mm-hmm. It's just that they had a little bit of an edge within that C, like if you think back to the 75 to 80% of all applicants in the Wharton pool that qualify, the people who mm-hmm. get admitted have a little bit of an edge. It's not like they had some major jackpot or Um, anything like that. It's just that every single part of their application was dialed up as much as they could, whether it be at scores, um, extracurricular record, being very thoughtful about choosing their recommenders. And that's where their competitive edge came from. 
that that little mm -hmm. I call it the ten percent edge sometimes. Um, and the ones who don't get admitted, it's not like they miss something majorly most of the time. They may have come very very close, but someone else mm -hmm. had a ten percent edge. Right. Well, and that's I think it's so important when you're trying to apply to these top schools um, that you you understand that it. I mean, I don't know, <laughs> like on the one hand, like I hate to like use statements like this because they feel like kind of exclusionary and pressuring. But it is true, I think, that like your application kind of has to be perfect from your point of view. Like you really need to be like focus on every detail and every part of it. You can't just like phone in, you know, the essay or the, or the letters or, or even the interview. You have to be very intentional about each piece of it, right? Definitely. And I'm sure you know this because you um, run a test prep company, among other things. The mm -hmm. One of the strongest correlating factors with a strong test score is the amount of hours you put into preparation, right? Well, mm -hmm. the same is true for the MBA application. The more hours you put working intentionally on it, the stronger it becomes. Uh, but when we speak about the very top schools, one thing that I also tell candidates is um, there's the application which you can think of, let's put it very crudely, it's your marketing package, right? I mean, it's how you present yourself, but then there needs to be the substance. There's no substitute for the substance, which is your work experience, your leadership track record your actions over the years. So that substance needs to be there. It needs to stack up in the pile of mm -hmm. other candidates who are also applying. Yeah. So let's let's talk about um, just sort of like the process that people go through when they're trying to build their resume for this, right? Um, and I think in particular, you know, it seems like in order to be successful, really uh for the top top schools you've got to start early right you arguably maybe should have even been thinking about this in undergrad but even if you weren't you know to apply to the top top schools you'll be in the best shape if you kind of were are starting even like a couple years ahead of time with directing your resume and your extracurriculars and like the organizations that you join and other things like that yeah um, you're absolutely right. There is a process. And for many of the really strong candidates, that process consciously or subconsciously probably starts years before they decide to apply. Um, it's not unusual for someone to have been thinking about potentially going to business school, even when they were in undergrad. I just recently started working with my very first candidate who's getting ready to apply in fall of next year. So that person is starting what, 11 months in advance, 10 months in advance. But when mm -hmm. I asked how early did you start thinking about business school, the answer was, oh, when I was an undergrad, even though the person was in undergraduate business school, right? Right. So I like to, um, I have a metaphor for that. Um, I call it forging versus scrambling. Mm -hmm. The most successful candidates forge their way to the moment when they're ready to submit the application to business school, the less successful ones, even though they can, there are plenty of people who can be scrappy and pull it off, but when, and pull it off. But um, when you scramble, which is the opposite of forging, um, that's when you leave a lot more to chance. That's when you miss opportunities to, um, to maximize your 
odds for being admitted. Mm-hmm. Um, so, well, and it's also just like you're up against people that are doing that, right? <laughs> exactly. So the round one admits that I worked with did three things particularly well. First, obviously the test. And I'm sure that you've seen plenty of stories about this. You know how candidates come to you, I'm sure, and they give you a, they have a target score, right? But Mm -hmm. how often does that target score materialize on the very first take? I'm curious, like, do you have any statistic about that by any chance? Uh, I don't have a statistic about that. I think it just, it depends so much on, uh, it, like, it depends on three things. Like, number one, you know, what was their current, what was their score coming in? Two, what was, what's their target? Um, three is also whether, you know, their first attempt was like, this is it, or their first attempt was like, I'm just going to give this a shot. And then I figure that, you know, I'm going to probably do a second attempt. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I don't really have a statistic for it, but it's it it's pretty rare, I think, that uh people get the if they're applying to the top schools, you probably want at least seven hundred, usually more like seven twenty to seven forty on the GMAT and then on the GRE you want equivalent scores. And uh it's pretty hard to get those scores even uh on the first try, no matter if you're like one of the smartest people, right? It's just you have to get used to the test and you have to kind of like understand like the question types that you need to work on and all that good stuff. A hundred percent. And that's exactly what my candidates experienced. Everyone who got admitted in round one had started preparing for the GMAT or GRE early and they had plenty of runway for retakes when needed. And um, they were done taking the test at least a month, maybe at least six weeks before the deadlines. That doesn't necessarily mean that they had gotten their ideal score. There were people that certainly applied with scores that were below the median, but they had done their best. They knew they had done their best. And then in the weeks before the deadline, they focused on their ambi application materials. So that was the first thing that was uh, uniform across everyone that I worked with that was successful at these very top schools. And then the second thing was, um, like we spoke a little bit earlier, the amount of hours of effort that went into the applications, many of them started working with me months in advance, um, usually in the first quarter of the year. So January, February, March, they didn't have their target score yet, but they knew what they were aiming for. They knew what schools were on their list. And starting so early meant that we had ample time to identify ways for them to bolster their leadership track record even further. So they came with a strong track record because you can't replicate, Mm -hmm. you can't create a track record in 10 months, but you can certainly strengthen it in very meaningful ways. And I think that that's a point that's worth kind of um, double clicking on, if you wish, because sometimes students will say... But, but but isn't it too late? Isn't the admissions committee going to sort of think that I'm intentionally doing this? And I have mm-hmm. to tell them that if it's something where you already have some track record in it, and if it's genuine, you're doing it because it's for a community that you've already been part of for a while, you're just amplifying your role in it, then no, it's not going to be seen as you sort of staging yourself for admission, it's just going to be seen as you being intentional about being a strong leader. So some of the candidates that I work with, for example, sought to seek 
leadership positions within organizations where they had already been working for in some mm -hmm. capacity. So maybe as a member, and now they became a head of a committee or they took um, charge of fundraising efforts for some initiative, again, something that they've already been part of. So they were very intentional in, in just making sure that they dedicate their efforts to something that's meaningful to them and something that's genuine and completely authentic. But that kind of shows that that continued commitment to, I call it something bigger than yourself, because it can't mm -hmm. just be all about you. I mean, leadership is by definition about others. So that was the second thing that those round one success stories had in common. And then the third thing is something that, again, candidates sometimes misunderstand because the MBA admissions process is so just fraught with anxiety, so competitive, and they focus on the application and on proving that they're the kind of person that the school wants to admit. But the people who had success in round one, in my experience, actually had a vision of what kind of person they were going to be 10 years from now. Mm -hmm. They were able to communicate that vision and they were able to portray very clearly how they were going to show up on campus now and then as alums later. And this point is really critical and very mm -hmm. often overlooked by candidates because in the end, this is what you're selling to the school, especially the very top schools, not simply who you are now. We are going to be as a student, we are going to be as an alum and a carrier of the brand for years to come. And that right. vision is also what helps candidate when the going gets tough, which it does for every single person. Um, mm -hmm. One of them uh, sent me the most heartwarming emails after um, the submission of the round one application for that person saying, I feel great about what I submitted. And most importantly, I've actually started to crystallize my thoughts with respect to my next 10 year goal. And I'm so appreciative of the exceptional and thoughtful guidance I got from you, Pedia, to get to that point. Um, <laughs> it wasn't an easy process because it's actually, people don't come with a crystal clear notion of who they want to be. It's a messy process, but um, but it's very important to think about it this way and to think about the MBA simply as a step, as a step mm -hmm. in the process of who you're going to become. Um, well, it's also so important, I think, to have that vision because then it already helps you with the other one of the other major things that you need to have in the MBA process, which is not just a great track record, but a great story. Yeah, right? a great story. Um, and I feel like, yeah, that's the vision is necessary almost for the story. A hundred percent. But one point I'm going to make, because when I start talking about this, candidates sometimes get carried away, is that vision can't be a pipe dream. It cannot be simply a grand vision of how you're going to make a difference in the future. It has to be grounded in the candidate's track record. There's a reason why Harvard talks about one of the qualities that they seek um, in a candidate being a habit of leadership. And a habit means a repetitive sequence of actions, right? Something that you do habitually. So it can be just a big dream. Um, I joke sometimes with candidates that no one is getting admitted to the very top schools on a promissory note on, oh, this is what I'm going to do. You have to link it to your past um, actions. Well, and it has to be like, I don't know, and maybe maybe you can argue with me on this or you could correct me, but I feel like if you're if you say that your goal is to become, you know, president or to 
like eventually take over Amazon or to build a company that's a you know a trillion dollar company like Apple or Amazon. I mean, those are goals that maybe are maybe just unrealistic for anybody. Um, and so, like, I I wonder, sort of, you know, it can't be a pipe dream, but you obviously have to present an attractive vision. Like, is it about just kind of trying to be realistic, or should you maybe be a little unrealistic? Like, what do you recommend? Um, here's how I like to talk about it. And one thing that um, I always emphasize with candidates is that, um, so it comes down, if we break the vision into two parts, the two parts will be your short-term career goals and your longer-term career goals, or kind of like the more visionary goals, right? For your short-term career goals, you definitely want feasibility to be there. Uh, because the MBA, even from the very top schools, is not some great equalizer where it's going to open every single door you knock on, there will still be requirements for what kind of pre-MBA background and transferable skills you need for the companies that recruit in a certain area to to, um, recruit you. I mean, no one's going to break into product management without ever ever having touched anything tech-related before. No one is going to go into investment banking without having the kind of experience that the recruiters expect, right? So your short-term goal has to be feasible. Um, It's also what schools get measured on, like 50% of the U.S. News and World Report ranking relates to placement, which is percentage Mm -hmm. um, employed at graduation, three months post-graduation, and salary and bonus. So this is really critical. For the short-term vision, uh, for the longer-term vision, it can be, absolutely, it can be aspirational. And obviously, these schools want to see people who dream big, but it still needs to be connected to your record. And the why behind that vision is actually way more important than the actual vision. And what do I mean by the why? Um, I very often advise candidates to think about it, not from the perspective of what is the actual end goal, like, oh, I want to be a CEO of Amazon, but what is it a biz- what is a business or societal problem that they feel right. uniquely positioned or compelled to solve? And then your vision becomes very personal to you. So again, what is a business or societal problem that you feel uniquely positioned or compelled to solve? When you have that component added to both your short-term goals and your long-term vision, it becomes very personal to you and it becomes much mm-hmm. more believable. Yeah. Well, and I think it's 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 also like you say personal to you. I feel like that's got to be that's the other <laughs> of all the things that we've already told you to think about. That's the other thing that is really important to think about is everything in your application really has to be like personal to you. And it, people need to feel like they're getting a unique angle and a unique thing. If you're, if you're just, I mean, and you know, maybe you should try to aspire to do better than get a job at McKinsey afterwards. But <laughs> at the end of the day, Right. Like you, you just need like in your essays and in your application to kind of try to be unique, not overly unique, like for the sake of it. Right. Like, you know, but um, definitely like just be yourself. A hundred percent. And that's sometimes one of the hardest things to do. Um, so very often candidates will ask me sort of, so what do these successful admits that you work with, what do they write about in their MBA essays, right? I mean, that's a question that we very often um, get asked. Um, and it's a valid question, but the thing is that given how open-ended the, the Stanford and Harvard essays particularly are, Wharton is a little bit more 
straightforward, like more to the point, if you wish. But with Harvard and Stanford, you have such wide berth to decide what you're going to talk about. So candidates always want to know what kind of essay they should write. And the truth is, right. no two Harvard or GSB essays are ever alike. Uh, and it's very, getting to a really strong essay is a very messy process. It can be really painful at times because like you go, you introspect, you go in so many different directions, you try to figure out what are your pivotal moments, your inflection points. Uh, and then the hardest thing that I very often see in candidates is the ability to make a point with a story. So um, I'll give you an example, actually. Someone came to me very close to the round one deadline um, and wanted, they call it a sanity check, right, um, of their Harvard mm -hmm. essay. And the entire first paragraph was statements. My life has been driven by values. There was a description of what these values were. And the thing is, you read that summary, and it can be written by any person, right? I mean, we all try to live by values, right? Um, so yeah. I very often have to push people in these situations and say, well, but where did the values come from? Like, what is one little vignette that that shows me how it actually happened? And it's not very easy for them to do, but when you push them and guide them, there's always this moment where out of the messiness, beautiful little anecdotes start to come up that tell the story mm -hmm. on their behalf. And then that's where the magic happens. It's never a paint by numbers job. And again, it can be it can be painful at times because introspection and self-reflection doesn't come easily to people always like to some people, maybe a little bit easier than most. Um, it was actually funny. Um, the day Harvard released decisions, one of my candidates called me and after we squealed for a little bit, right? <laughs> As you do when you get... Uh, the the answer is yes. Email that's the first line in the um, in the email that Howard sends to admitted students. Um, she kind of quipped um, as was very customary for her. She's like, I can't say that the process wasn't painful at times, but she said, but being guided by an expert made a difference. Um, so um, when you engage in seeking out these little, I call them vignettes, if you wish, um, mm -hmm. what ends up happening is um, the person who's applying comes through the narrative. It just, it pulls you in. You 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 feel like you're getting to know them. Um, and one thing- Right. Well, and that's the key thing is like, these people are reading hundreds of these essays, if not per day, then per week. And like, you got to make it interesting for them to- gotta, You've got to make it interesting. You've got to pull them in. And frankly, sometimes candidates, one mistake that candidates make is to think that they have to portray perfection. Everything has to fit right. so, or that it's a puzzle almost. Like I have to have this piece and that piece and that piece. Um, and the truth is, it, it doesn't have to be this way. And I'm ready to 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 say, based on my experience, that sometimes, like having something that's a little bit unfinished about that candidate, that's actually imperfect and human and less polished, results in a stronger story than something where everything, like every box is checked and every quality is emphasized. Um, so I encourage candidates to to really get vulnerable. I know it's an overused word. I encourage them not to rely on mm -hmm. platitudes. More than anything, I tell them that if you have to label a certain action, like if you have to start the sentence with, I exhibited leadership when I, then you haven't done your job well. Because if you have to label it right. by the outcome, 
Because if you don't label it, maybe they're going to miss just how great that leadership example is. Then you have to go back to the drawing board because your actions have to speak for themselves and you have to feel confident that they do without like plastering leadership and impact all over each paragraph. Well, right. And I mean, it. I think it would show not tell is kind of always the rule with these things, right? Like if you're saying... I have leadership skills in your essay. I mean, you've already lost at that point. (laughs) Like you really need to be a lot more um, focused on telling the story and letting that story show the skills. Right. Um, I often quote Margaret Thatcher who famously said back in her day, being powerful is like being a lady. If you have to tell people you are, you aren't. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So then, um, I I feel like that was a good way. Like, I feel like we covered the essay pretty well. I mean, what are the other things um, that candidates that are getting admitted to these schools, right, that you've worked with and and otherwise, like, what do you think that they're doing to kind of set themselves up for success here? Mm -hmm. No, that's a a very good question. And um, again, there's a thread that I consistently see Uh, the strongest candidates realize that no one is entirely self-made. So one thing that they do very, very well is they surround themselves with resources. Um, They have mentors, they have peers, and they've had them for a while. They have managers who support them. Um, They very often join organizations such as Forte or MLT or maybe the consortium. They tap their alumni network from undergrad Um, They engage with target schools and they with organizations that are dedicated to them. Like, for example, if they're veterans, they'll connect with the veterans club at each school. They speak to students and alums and they kind of win them over and they become a resource for them. And of course, um, they often choose to work with an MBA admissions consultant. And it's not because they're insecure or they can't manage the application process on their own, but because they recognize the power of having a champion and especially the power of having someone with actual admissions expertise who can guide them through. And it becomes not really about finding shortcuts um, as much as it becomes finding the long cuts, the places of the MBA application process where you should be dedicating really significant efforts, your story being one such place, right? And having an expert to guide you also becomes about the ability to tackle the myriad decisions that are required as you navigate the MP application process, from choosing recommenders Mm -hmm. to selecting the right little anecdotes, the vignettes that I talked about um, for your MBA story, because that power to make a decision and to stop second guessing it, and then instead to move on to execution and to the next piece and to the next piece, can have a tremendous impact on a candidate's ability to navigate the process and present themselves with confidence. Um, right. Well, and also it just is nice because when you're doing this stuff, oftentimes you're you're not coming at it with the perspective of other applications, right? Like you haven't seen anyone else's application, you know, versus a consultant is seeing probably hundreds and some of them have seen thousands and they can you know and they've seen they've got a lot more data and a lot more context than any individual like applicant could possibly have no that's absolutely true and uh in my particular approach one thing that candidates find extremely helpful is that 
I actually don't feel that the, as a former ATCOM, I know that the schools and the MBA admissions committees are not looking for a very rigid picture of a candidate to emerge, that there are so many different flavors and variations of what a great story could be. So when I guide candidates this way, it kind of removes the anxiety. And they very often, it's interesting, it's a consistent thread when they leave me testimonials, they very often talk about how they felt that they could present themselves authentically and they didn't feel the need to be anxious to play into a certain stereotype or a certain type. They didn't have to typecast. Mm -hmm. So that kind of frees up your mental bandwidth, if you wish, because frankly, focus and mindset are two of the most important components uh, and determinants of success for MBA candidates. And, and mindset obviously relates to, to what are your beliefs about the MBA admission process. And when they shed that notion of, oh, I have to look a certain way, and there's only mm -hmm. one way. And when they feel empowered to talk about who they really are, it's very, it's very liberating for them. And it's very inspiring. And then they end up really getting into it. I mean, when we use this approach, I saw some beautiful essays emerge in round one. I mean, there were certain ones that are going to be my favorite forever. And again, it wasn't about me saying, oh, this is what you should say. It was about like, tell me who you are. Let's talk. Let's have messy conversations about who you are. And then mm -hmm. as I listen to you, I'm going to tell you what is super interesting about you and what is super compelling about you. And it might be something that you haven't thought about it. Someone recently said in a conversation right. that you can't read um, the jar label when you're inside the jar, right? So uh. sometimes I kind of play that role of helping people read their own label, which they can't see because they're too close to, to who they are. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's actually really cool. I really like that analogy. Um, and yeah, I just think in general that there's, there's so much that people try to do, right? And I mean, even if you hire the best of the best MBA admissions consultant, right? Like you're not guaranteed success at a top school. But I, but I do think that, you know, it can improve your chances. It's absolutely about that. I mean, I very often have this conversation very early on with candidates because it's not unusual for someone to come to me and to only want to work with me on these three schools that we've kind of been talking about today. So Harvard, Stanford, Wharton, or sometimes even just two of them. And what I have to tell this person is that um, they have to think very carefully that you can be absolutely amazing and still not get admitted. That's the most difficult fact of MBA admissions. Mm -hmm. uh, with all this talk about what it takes to be successful at these schools, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that there's no combination of actions or some combination of attributes that guarantees admission to these schools. There simply isn't. You can be a truly amazing candidate and still not get admitted because there will always be more outstanding candidates than there are seats available. So it's right. not about going wrong somewhere. It's just you don't end up being selected. So I have this conversation very early on to make sure that candidates start with the right sort of set of expectations and, and know that, I mean, I don't have some magic pixie dust that I sprinkle over applications and then boom, um, they get selected. I mean, I have a very, very high rate of success, but it's because the candidates work very, very hard. Totally. Well, and it's also because like you said, like uh, these candidates are coming in and they're really like aligned with you on 
dialing up everything to 11 in the whole application process. I mean, I think the, the thing that still stuck, sticks with me from earlier in the episode is when you said that 60 to 70% of people that apply to Wharton would be successful there. That basically means that, you know, it's not just about putting forward an application that you feel like is at up to Wharton's standards or that Wharton would be happy to admit you. You have to also then, you know, beat out, even then your odds are still, you know, seven to one or 10 to one to, to, to get in, right? Even if you meet that bar. Um, so you can never really count on anything, but I, you do need to kind of tune up every single piece, like big and small of your application to try and reach that point. Absolutely. And you have to diversify your odds. I had candidates in round one who applied to these very top schools and let's say interviewed at every single one of them, which absolutely means that they were admissible, they were desirable, the school wanted to speak with them, and yet they got into one and not the other or into two, but not the third one. What does this tell you? I mean, they had equally strong applications for all, but the kind of class that each school was trying to put together and the kind of pool, total applicant pool, that they were making these selections from was very different from one school to the other, right? Um, right. So they made selections within a pool of very highly qualified, admirable, excellent candidates, and sometimes... Someone gets selected for one school, but not for the other. And it's something that sometimes startles the candidates when it happens. I mean, we've had so many funny conversations yeah. um, about it. Sometimes they'll get chosen by the most selective of the schools and not chosen but by the less selective, right? They'll get into mm -hmm. the one with the, strong, the toughest, most difficult odds, but not in one where the odds are actually better. And and that's one of the paradoxes of MB admission. Yeah. Well, and I think um, that's also why it's so important to not just apply to, you know, like Harvard and Stanford and, and maybe Wharton and then just leave it at that, right? Like you've really got to have a diverse range of schools and there are plenty of amazing schools that are not these top schools. Um, but obviously, that's those, the top schools are the ones that everyone wants to get into. It's a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy in that way, right? Yeah. You have to stay connected to your why. Like, why are you pursuing an MBA in the first place? That kind of person that you want to be 10 years from now. And the truth is, for more candidate, for most candidates, that why can be fulfilled at a range of schools. It's very rarely that it can only come to fruition at a very small subset of schools. Of course... If someone feels that it's either that or nothing, then they have to be ready to face the nothing, right? Because it could happen. I mean, again, my candidates were incredibly lucky in round one. No one had to face no offers. If anything, right. they had what I call champagne problems. <laughs> I have a rare, yeah. I have a gift that, and they know that there, there is a gift coming, um, which is um, a little a little meme of, of a champagne um, that they get when they get their second admission. <laughs> uh, that's fun. I like that. Well, great. So then any, um, as we kind of wrap up here today, are there any sort of closing thoughts that you have for people that are trying to go to the top schools, Harvard, Stanford, Warden, et cetera? Honestly, I'm going to say to them um, to consider the race as having already begun. 
right? Because I mentioned earlier how I'm already working with people who are applying in round one next year. So that doesn't necessarily mean that they have to start working with a consultant now or at any point. But what they have to start um, doing is be intentional about their actions. Definitely start preparing for the test. That needs to have started already or should start very soon. And then um, start their self-reflection. That process is hard. Sometimes I tell them, like, start, keep a journal about your pivotal mm-hmm. moments, about your thoughts. I mean, unless you, you're going to have little aha moments throughout your journey. And if you don't capture them on paper or some electronic form, you're going to lose them. So start being intentional. Start start forging so that you don't have to scramble. So that's my advice. Start forging. Right. Yeah, I love that. Well, thank you. This has been GRE Snacks, hosted by Tyler from Achievable with Petia Whitmore from My MBA Path. And Achievable has a great online GRE course you can try for free at Achievable.me. Use the code podcast to get 10% off at checkout.